Eric Little. Eric Little was a man of whom the world was not worthy. Known by many as a physical runner with most people aware of his life from the movie Chariots of Fire. But Eric Little was born in 1902 in North China as a missionary kid. But he attended school in England where he got introduced to track and demonstrated his ability to run at age 21 in a regional meet between Scotland, England, and Ireland, where he won the 400-meter race despite being knocked down at the beginning of it, so clearly a man with incredible speed, which got him chosen for the 1924 Olympics. Now, the part most people know about Eric Little is that he was a devout Christian who refused to run on Sundays because of his deep convictions regarding the Lord's Day. So at the Olympics, he was scheduled to run in the 100-meter sprint, where he was the clear favorite and would have won easily. But the final heat was on Sunday. So they moved him to the 400-meter against an American who ran a world record time of 47.8 seconds that morning. Nonetheless, Eric Little ran the 400, and he ran it in 47.6 seconds, 0.2 seconds faster that afternoon, not only beating the American and winning the gold medal, but breaking the world record again for the second time in that day, which caused the crowd to go absolutely crazy when it was announced. Now, it's helpful to know that even at the 1924 Olympics, Eric Little could have won several gold medals, probably three at least. So the British Olympic Committee and all the people of Scotland were pressuring him to continue his career and to plan and compete in the 1928 Olympics, which seems like an obvious decision. But what did Eric Little do? He walked away. Why did he walk away? Because he was running a totally different, more important race altogether. And the truth is, the Olympics were a distraction to that race, which was back in China. So he moved back, got married, and ministered faithfully right up until World War II, where in March 1943, he was confined to a Chinese military prison camp. Now grab a hold of this picture, because there were 300 captives along with him in that camp from all walks of life. And Eric was alone, wife and kids back in Canada. In fact, he never got the chance to meet his third daughter. And yet he faithfully ministered there. He loved those around him, faithfully serving, joyfully volunteering, and gave everything he had, time, effort, affection, and most importantly, the gospel to those around him. So despite the persecution, the trials, and the tribulations, Eric Little ran the race that was set before him with endurance, faithfully ministering the good news of Jesus right up until he died February 21st, 1945, at the age of 43, just six months before the war ended. Here's the question. How did he do it? I mean, how do you walk away from being a national celebrity? Choosing instead to minister in such a difficult place like China and endure such persecution, trials, and tribulations with such joy 
and energy, clarity and courage, perspective and perseverance. How do you do that? One answer. He looked to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of his faith, and he considered the joy of one day seeing his Savior face to face in future glory as greater wealth than any Olympic gold medal. That's how he did it. And that's how you and I can do it as well. So if you would, go ahead and open with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, page 1008, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Encourage you to have your Bible open and my outline right in your Bible. Three points to my outline this morning. Command to run, strategy to run, and application to run. Hebrews chapter 12. Following as I read Hebrews 12, 1 to 3. The author says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now notice how chapter 12 starts. Starts with the word, therefore. So verse 1 is written in light of what comes before it. So there's clearly context to these words. But I want you to think about the context in two different ways, starting with A, the condition of the church. Because Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who are struggling with the persecution that is most certainly coming. So they're being tempted to abandon their salvation in Christ and turn back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. Why would they do that? So that they might not be persecuted. So the author's pleading with them to hold fast to their confession in Jesus without wavering. Because they're wavering, they're seriously struggling. To use the imagery of a runner, their spiritual legs are tired, their lungs are winded, and they're growing weak in the knees. So honestly, at this point, it would be easier for them to just wander off into the crowd than run with endurance the race that God has set before them. Which means, spiritually speaking, they're starting to drift away. They're lacking focus and energy, clarity and conviction, which is why we have all of the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. For example, Hebrews 2.1, the author says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Verse 3, how shall we possibly escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Or how about Hebrews 3.12, where he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart causing you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day as long as it's still called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin so take care brothers 
Why? Because some are obviously not taking care. So the church is drifting, neglecting their salvation and growing careless. So not being diligent, not exhorting one another, not fixing their hope completely on the Lord Jesus, which means they're being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, the worries of the world, and the fearful expectation of persecution. So that's the context of the entire book. And it explains, A, the condition of the church. And it's into that context that the author says, Hebrews 12:1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, what I want you to understand is the command to run doesn't come out of the blue, but instead is the main point of the entire book, that believers in Christ are commanded to persevere, to endure, to not drift away, neglect their salvation, be sluggish, or take for granted their eternal security, but instead to fight the good fight of faith on the basis of Christ's once-for-all sacrifice on the cross for their salvation. The main idea here is run. Run with endurance. That's the command. And everything else supports it or explains it. Provides strategy or the motivation to do it. And the immediate context is obviously Hebrews 11. The hall of faith. And B, this great cloud of witnesses. Because the author says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So who are the witnesses? What does it mean for them to witness? Well, it's all the saints who lived and died so valiantly. Including Abel, Enoch, and Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, Moses, and all the men and women of whom the world was not worthy. So those who are living proof of a faith that looks forward to future glory, just like Eric Little. But what does it mean that they're witnesses? Because witness can either mean the act of seeing or observing something, or witnessing can mean the act of testifying or declaring something. So which is it? Well, I take this cloud of witnesses to be those who are declaring They're testifying by their examples what it looks like to live by faith and die by faith, looking forward to the joy of being with Jesus. And the best way to highlight that is by looking at Hebrews 11.4. So just look at Hebrews 11.4 for a moment with me. Because the author highlights Abel. What does it say about Abel? It says, Abel, who through his faith, though he died still speaks. But that's true of all these heroes of the faith, isn't it? So this entire cloud of witnesses, because they're all dead, and yet they're all still speaking. They're still witnessing. They're still testifying through the scriptures regarding what it looks like to live by faith and what it looks like to persevere all the way to the end and die by faith. Now grab a hold of the imagery. Because the picture being painted here is of a race, which is obviously not a sprint, right? It's not a 50-yard dash. It's a marathon. 
And the people who've gone before us, Hebrews 11, this hall of faith, have already finished. But now they're gathered along the sidelines, holding out their glorious victories and the corresponding wounds. So testifying to the great work God has done through them and declaring the persecution that they endured all by faith in the Lord Jesus. But the point is they made it, right? They, they finished. They fought the good fight. They finished the race. They kept the faith. And now they're just waiting for us. So we all can receive the great crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to each and every one of us when he returns. So they're cheering us on. And they're declaring through their examples, you can do it. You can make it. You can finish. Just keep running. It's not about the speed, is it? It's about persevering in the faith. It's about making it to the finish line. So don't quit. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. But we're not just given the command to run, are we? With this glorious audience, this great cloud of witnesses cheering us on, we're also given, number two, the strategy to run. Because verse one says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. So the first strategy is to lay things aside, namely every weight and every sin. And the second strategy is to look to Jesus, both his person and his example. Let's start with A, by laying things aside. Now, if the command is to run and to run with endurance, it makes total sense doesn't it? To lay things aside. You have to lay th things aside in order to run with endurance the race that is set before you. So what's the best way to run? To lay things aside. It's to cast off anything and everything that's not useful or necessary. So spiritually speaking, it's the weight that hinders us or the sin that entangles us. I want to start with number one, laying aside every sin that entangles us. Because you can't possibly run the race of faith if all you're ever doing is hanging on to the same old sins and allowing them to constantly keep tripping you up. Yet that's exactly what he's talking about, isn't it? Because he says, laying aside every sin which clings so closely. So he's talking about the sins that we struggle with the most. So he's talking about our besetting sins. The sins that we have the hardest time casting off. The sins that are most likely to distract us and entangle us. And the sins that threaten to consume us and destroy us. You know, the picture that immediately comes to my mind is of a Venus flytrap. Perhaps you know what I'm talking about. The Venus flytrap is this incredible plant that essentially looks like this big green clam. 
And it's got these antenna and these spikes coming out the ends of the leaves. But it also produces this incredibly delicious nectar that flies cannot seem to resist. So they land on the pads of this open green clam and they gorge themselves on the nectar until all of a sudden the trap closes and it consumes them. Honestly, if you go home and watch the videos online, it's terrifying. But that's what comes to my mind. Because we're talking about the sinful nectar that tempts us the most, that that draws us in and clings so closely to us. So the sins that distract us, entangle us, and threaten to destroy us altogether, that's what the author is talking about, isn't it? Sin that prevents us from running the race of faith with endurance, which obviously causes us to not finish the course at all. I mean, that kind of sin at least has to be in view. Hebrews 10.26, the author just told us, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment. So number one, strategy for running with endurance. We must lay aside every sin which clings so closely that threatens to entangle us and prevent us from finishing the race altogether. So let me just ask, what sin is that for you? It's different for all of us. But do you know what that sin is for you? Do you have a name for it? Is it materialism? Is it judgmentalism? Is it envy or pride or lust or anger? Is it fear of man or sexual immorality? Is it laziness? Is it drunkenness? Is it the worries of the world? The deceitfulness of riches? Or the desire for other things? Let me encourage you to identify that sin in your life. Because it's not the same for all of us. But you have to identify it. So that you can fight the good fight of faith against it. But it's not just sin, is it? It's also laying aside every weight that hinders you. Now, I want you to picture this in your mind's eye. Someone who is running a marathon, so they're running 26 miles. But they make the decision to run the marathon in a trench coat. Or in high heels. Or in a wool sweater. What would you immediately say to someone who is doing that, right? You're, you're standing in the crowd. You're just watching the marathon. You don't know anything about running. But you're smart enough to comment on that situation, don't you think? And what would you say to those people? You would recommend put on the lightest shorts and the t-shirt you can find with the best shoes money can buy. Why? Because you're running a marathon. 
But I want to push this down a little further. Because you could easily argue that none of those things are wrong. It's not wrong to run in a trench coat. It's not wrong to run in high heels or in a sweater. But you'd also agree it's not smart, right? But you understand that's so often what we argue. Meaning we ask the question, what's wrong with this or that? And if there's nothing wrong or sinful with this or that, then what's the big deal? But what I'm trying to say is you're asking the wrong question altogether. So according to Hebrews 12.1, the question is not what's wrong with this or that. Right? The right question is, does it help you run? Because the author is saying, don't just lay aside every sin, but lay aside anything and everything that hinders you from running the race of faith with perseverance. So anything that prevents you from delighting yourself in the Lord Jesus. So he's saying the best strategy is to get rigorous with your life. Get rid of the trench coat. Get rid of the heels. Get rid of the wool sweater. They weigh you down. You don't need any of that. Not to get to Jesus. Not to make it home the glory. Those things are unhelpful and they're unnecessary. So let me just ask you, what are those things for you? How about social media? How about Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter? Are those things helping you run? What do you do with Facebook? You compare and contrast your life to other people? How's that helpful? What do you do with Instagram? What do you do with Reels? Mindlessly stare at those things? How about Netflix? Amazon Prime? You get it for free! How about binge-watching your favorite show? How about unhelpful music, ungodly friends, inappropriate movies? How about comfort and ease? How about alcohol? How about video games? How about buying in to the cultural mandate that you must maximize your me time? I mean, you just agreed it's not smart to run a marathon in a trench coat, heels, or a sweater. Well, then why in the world would we hesitate even for a second if these things hinder us from running the race of faith to get to see Jesus? I appeal to you, be tenacious about what stays in your life and what has to go. And work hard at shifting your orientation from being a minimalist to being a maximalist. What's the minimal things that I have to get rid of to run? Oh, don't take that approach. Be a maximalist. So it's not just the obvious sins that need to go. It's anything that hinders you from running the race of faith with endurance. So that's strategy number one. To run with endurance, the race set before us, laying aside every sin that entangles and laying aside every weight that hinders. 
But the author gives us another strategy altogether, doesn't he? I would suggest a deeper and more profound strategy. So when you're facing the steepest hills, it's cold and it's rainy and you're running into the wind, you know what that feels like? Your legs are burning, your heart is pounding, and everything in you just wants to quit and go home. Strategy two is B, looking to Jesus. The author says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? How do we run that race? By looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Two reasons why we should look to Jesus. Number one, because of his person. And number two, because of his example. Now, when I say his person, I'm talking about the description that he's the founder and he's the perfecter of our faith, which obviously go together. But it's so helpful to see in a couple of other passages. For example, Hebrews 2.10. The author says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, is bringing many sons to glory should be made the founder, the author, the source of their salvation, perfect. How? Through suffering. So Jesus is the founder of our salvation. He's the author. He's the source of our salvation, which means he did everything necessary to pay for our sins and to reconcile us to God, which is what he goes on to say, Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of his people. Hebrews 5.8 is so helpful. The author says, although Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through the things he suffered and being made perfect, he became the author or source or founder of our eternal salvation for all those who obey him, for all those who repent and believe in him. So Jesus is the founder of our faith, meaning there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. So the only way to be forgiven of your sin and to have the hope of eternal life is to look to Jesus. His sinless life, his sacrificial death, his suffering on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. So let me appeal to you. If you have not yet looked to Jesus in faith, then I would appeal for you to do that this morning because there is salvation in no one else there's no other way to be forgiven of your sin there's no other way to be reconciled to God there's no other way to have the hope of eternal life unless you look to Jesus by faith forgiveness of sins the hope of eternal life But you got to look to Jesus. Can't look to yourself. That's not working. You look to Jesus. You repent of your sins. You believe in his finished work on the cross. You delight in the reality that he rose on the third day, that he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he's given you his spirit so that you can now live for his glory. 
Why would you wait? Look to Jesus this morning. Repent, believe, and be saved. But Jesus is not just the author of our faith, is he? He's the perfecter of our faith, which means he's the beginning and the end. So he promises that he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. So he will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus ever lives to intercede for you, and he promises to save you to the uttermost. So Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He's the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. And all of that gets played out in his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, which is number two, his example. The author says, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated right now at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus is the greatest example of persevering faith that has ever been given. I mean, if you will, the great cloud of witnesses is wonderful, right? Hebrews 11 is great, delightful, but it's nothing compared to Jesus. Let me put that in running language. Jesus ran the race, didn't he? He ran the race that he's calling us to run. His race was 33 years long. And the author wants us to specifically focus on the last week of Jesus' life. That's why he says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So his race ended with a horrific gauntlet of opposition and suffering and the immeasurable shame of the crucifixion. Not the physical pain, but being cut off from his father. So bearing the awful weight of sin and enduring the wrath of God as a result. Surely you agree Jesus' race was a marathon of love with the last leg, so the, so the last quarter mile, including betrayal and desertion, a crown of thorns on his head, running, persevering in his running with nails in his hands and his feet and a spear thrust into his side just to confirm that he was dead. No doubt the greatest act of love ever performed in the history of the world because the race set before Jesus was the race to die for the sins of all those who believe in him. Here's the question. How did Jesus do it? Meaning, how did he run with such endurance? How did he run with such perseverance? How did he make it to the end declaring it is finished. Verse 2 tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So there was a future joy that enabled him and empowered him to persevere through the muck and the mire, the sorrow and the shame, which he despised. But the future joy was worth it, which surely included his exaltation to God's right hand but also the salvation he accomplished through his finished work on the cross for every man, woman, and child whom the Father had given to the Son. So the joy of his promised inheritance, people from every nation, tribe, kindred, and people. But whatever the specifics, 
It's crystal clear that it was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the pain and the agony and the shame of the cross. And as a result, he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, a position of glory and honor and praise where he rules and he reigns and he will rule and he will reign for all eternity. Here's the question I want to ask. If this future glory is so powerful that it enables such perseverance to such an extent that we can endure the worst trials and tribulations, persecution all the way up into death in our present life, are there examples of that in the scripture? The answer is, of course. Of course there's examples. I mean, what do you think Hebrews 11 is all about? It's an example. But what's even better is the people to whom this letter was written have already experienced it. In fact, if you will, flip back with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. Hebrews 10, 32. So helpful for us to see an example of it. Hebrews 10.32, the author says, but recall the former days when after you, who's the you? The you is the audience to whom the author is writing. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and afflictions, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Why would you endure such suffering? He tells us, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So for the joy set before them in the future, they endured the present persecution. And these are the exact same people to whom the letter is written. So they know what it looks like to run with endurance the race set before them, identifying with Jesus and his people rather than avoiding persecution. Just look at the list. Being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction means they were victims of verbal abuse and mockery in the public square. And they weren't afraid to identify themselves with fellow Christians. Instead, they had compassion on those in jail, which means they brought them food and water and clothing and whatever else they needed. So rather than going underground to save their own skin, they visited those who were in prison, which they did at great risk to themselves because you weren't just identifying with the people in prison. You are identifying yourself with Christ himself. Then verse 34, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Now what's remarkable is not that they lost their property because they identified themselves with Christ, but that they responded to this great persecution with joy. How did they do it? How did they run with endurance in the past, even in the midst of this terrible persecution? Verse 34, You had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew clarity and conviction that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Now, is he talking about another home in the hills or another car or clothes or stuff stashed in the backyard? No, he's talking about the hope of future glory. So because of the joy set before them, they endured the loss of their reputation, the imprisonment of their friends, and even the plundering of their property. And how did they do that? Because they knew that one day they will be with Jesus. 
That's the greater joy set before him. It's the promise that Christ will return, that he will make all things right, that he's preparing a place for us in that better possession, that lasting city, our eternal heavenly home. Now put it together. If this world is your treasure, rather rather than the immeasurable riches of being with Jesus, If this earth is your treasure, rather than the immeasurable riches of being in Christ, in his presence, you will never make it through the persecution. You'll quit running. You'll step into the crowd and you'll walk home. But if you're looking to Jesus and you're considering the reproach of Christ as greater wealth than all the riches of this earth, then you'll persevere. Then you will make it home. You'll run the race with endurance. If this is better, you will make it And you will be able to run without growing weary or faint-hearted. Which is where the author goes next. Number three, the application to run. Look at verse three. The author says it again. Consider Jesus who endured such hostility against himself. Why? Why should I look to Jesus? Why should I consider Jesus? So that you might not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now just think about the specifics. Think about the original audience. That's exactly what's happening to them right now. They're potentially at the end of their race with persecution and death right around the corner. If you will, they're, they're facing the steepest hill yet. It's never been colder It's never rained harder. The wind has never been stronger. Their legs are burning. Their heart is pounding. And everything in them wants to quit and give up. Everything in them is growing weary and faint-hearted. What's the solution? Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. He endured such hostility against himself. He can relate. He understands what you're going through. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin. So consider, A, the reality of Christ's experience. He's been there. He's done that. Follow his example. 1 Peter 2.21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might, not, so that you might follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But what did he do? What did he do? He kept 
entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. He kept entrusting himself. So absolutely, consider the reality of Christ's experience, that he endured hostility right up until he was crucified on the cross. He understands persecution, and he can absolutely relate to whatever it is that you're going through. But it's so much more than that, isn't it? Because he endured that hostility, the mocking and the affliction, the betrayal and the desertion, the crown of thorns on his head and the nails in his hands and feet. He endured that hostility for what reason? For your salvation. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Do you understand? That's the greatest way we could ever consider Jesus. It's by Faith, looking to him, trusting him, delighting in the fact that he sacrificed was sufficient, not only to save us, not only to save us, but to empower us, to persevere, to endure, firm to the end. That's the greatest way we could ever consider Jesus, remembering he offered himself once for all a single sacrifice for our sins, thus securing our eternal redemption. Hebrews 9, 12. So by faith, we consider all that Jesus accomplished for our salvation, which enables us by his example and empowers us by his spirit to press on, to keep running, to keep putting one foot in front of the other, slow, faithful obedience in the same direction, not growing weary or faint-hearted, but entrusting ourselves to the one who promises to guard us through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. So then what should we do? Meaning, what does it look like for us to consider Christ so that we might not grow weary or faint-hearted, but run with endurance the race that is set before us. I've got practical application for you to consider this morning. For starters, we're heading into the summer. I mean, it's already Memorial Day weekend. Can you believe that? May 28th. What if you stepped back in this season and you made for yourself a plan, specific plan to run with endurance, which started by setting aside time this summer. You're looking at the summer, and I'm suggesting rather than saying, I made it to the summer, relaxation, I just want to coast. Oh, beloved, be wise and make a plan so that you might run with endurance. Set aside time to read through one of the Gospels. This summer, you're just going to commit to reading through one of the Gospels so that you can get to know Jesus even better, so that you can be enamored, refreshed all the more with his person and his work. 
Delighting yourself in Jesus, his teachings and his miracles, his character and his way of interacting with people. And being overwhelmed anew by the amount of time each gospel writer focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. Glory in his humiliation that he truly did endure from sinners such hostility against himself for you. Don't you think that planned, proactive, dedicated time considering Jesus would serve you well to not grow weary or faint-hearted in your race of faith? That might be the best spiritual strengthening exercise you've ever done for your faith is to just be still, read through a gospel, and consider Jesus to just delight yourself in him. The second thing I would suggest is that you start planning on how you can better dedicate yourself to running the race that God has uniquely set out for you. Specifically writing down any sins that entangle you or seemingly innocent weights that hinder you. So anything that's not explicitly condemned in the Bible, but is clearly holding you back in your race of faith or your race of love and courage and freedom, your, your race towards holiness, what it looks like to serve and sacrifice the king in a greater way. And I want to encourage you to be tenacious when you do this. Because if it hinders you from running or limits your affection for the Lord Jesus or your longing for his return, then it's got to go. Beloved, don't just identify these things and think you've made great strides. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's easy to identify them. I'm saying identify them and chuck them. Get rid of them. Cast them off. Because you want to run with endurance the race that God has set before you. And these things are a hindrance. So you're going to cast them off. You're going to identify them, and then you're going to make a plan, and you're going to get rid of them so that you can run with endurance. You know, that's why I started with Eric Little. He joyfully gave up Olympic gold medals for the Lord Jesus, which means he was ruthless. He was tenacious when he did this exercise. And he determined that the fleeting joy of Olympic glory, including glitz and glamour, being a national celebrity, rest and relaxation, ease and comfort, money and status, for him, it was a hindrance. It was in the way. He identified it, and what did he do? He chucked it. The whole country is pressuring him. And yet he considers Jesus. He weighs and he measures, and he chucks it. He offloads it. He gets rid of it in order to run with endurance the race that God set before him. 
including ministering the gospel to the lost in China, enduring hardship, persecution, trials, and tribulations with such joy and energy, clarity and courage, perspective and perseverance. How did he do it? He looked to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of his faith, and he considered the joy of one day seeing his Savior face to face as greater glory than any Olympic gold medal. Beloved, I'm encouraging you to weigh and measure and decide with deep conviction that Jesus is better. And rather than doing this, you do this. And you run with endurance, looking forward to the joy that is set before you of being in his presence. And that glory is so great, you never even look back. You just run. Allow me to pray to that end for each and every one of us. Lord, we confess. We look at this passage and we think about every sin that entangles us and every weight that hinders us. Lord, we look at the race before us and we're prone to grow weary and faint-hearted. Lord, I pray that we would not overcomplicate, but instead we would look to Jesus. We would delight ourselves in him. We would recognize that his life is not just an example for us, but is him running the race that was set before him for our salvation so that we can be forgiven of our sin, that we can have the hope of eternal life, that we can be empowered and enabled to run the race that you set before us. Lord, I pray for any here this morning who have not yet looked to Jesus by faith. Be at work in their minds and in their hearts that they would recognize there is salvation in no one else. Allow them, enable them to look to Jesus by faith for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that they would look to the Lord Jesus, that they would delight themselves in him, and that they would know with great clarity and conviction that the future glory of being with him for all eternity is not worthy to be compared with any of the riches of this earth. Lord, I pray that we would make a decided turn and we would run. Enable us, empower us, motivate us to run with endurance the race that you set before us. Look into Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We pray all these things in his precious name. Amen.